Welcome to another episode of Adding Context, a podcast of compelling conversations centered on advancing and enhancing the human experience. I am your host, Michael Bollins. Welcome to part two of our chat with Adam Boots Brogan as we continue our conversation on bartending and mixology. You've been a bartender, mixologist for how many years? To be honest, I don't know. I have it on my resume somewhere, and if I looked, I think it's around 13 years. And the reason why that number isn't really clear is because I don't really, like, start the clock until, like, I got consistent shifts. Like, I was pouring drinks. Uh, if you really want to go back, I poured my first pint when I was, like, eight or nine years old in Ireland. <laughs> so, I mean, we can say I've been bartending for 30 years. But the first year definitely was barbacking. Um, I always tell people like one of the more traditional routes into bartending is to bar back. And for people who don't know what bar backing is, is you're a bartender's assistant or apprentice. And, um, it's really, you're at the whim of who you're apprenticing for. And I've worked under some amazing bartenders who took me under their wing and taught me, uh, technique, skill, philosophy, theory, um, and then I've had others where you're the bar bitch and excuse the language, but you more so like a gopher and right. a gopher in office settings is go for this, go for that. And in the bar world, go for ice, go for limes, go for beer, go for vodka. And it's, it's very unrewarding, but, um, you get time behind the bar, you get familiarity with bottles. Um, you get to watch styles of service. It's, it is rewarding in its own way. If, you have the right mindset for what you're going to get from it because you're definitely, as a barback, not going to get to touch a bottle for six months to a year. Yeah. I, I did the same job. Um, it was at a nightclub where literally I spent the four or five hours I was there running from the bar to the cooler, bringing kegs, bringing bottles, bringing this, bringing that. Uh, it's definitely the uh, the least fun part of probably being in a bar. And working in a bar, but um, I how think, unrewarding is it? Well, it's, I, it's really. I, I think that's perspective. Why am I doing this? Yeah, I think yeah. there's a little perspective though, because it's it's rewarding in a less traditional sense in that you're you're learning. So it's it's definitely an, a learning educational experience, but it's just one of those things that just sucks. <laughs> we we always talk about it in the old school terms of paying your dues. Yes. You know, um, I, I'm rocking the same haircut you are and I'm, I've rocked, I've gone to the bald head. <laughs> it's a lot easier. But back when I used to visit the barber shop, you always see the apprentice in the shop and he's sweeping all the hair around all the chairs and that is thankless work. But you put in time until someone gives you an opportunity and maybe you don't get a chair and in the bar world, you get a well, you get a station, you get to work a shift, but you're the first one up if someone calls off sick or calls in, in our world, hungover. <laughs> um, you really kind of have to be ready to hop in when your opportunity strikes. And you get that just from being in the building. Yeah. You have to be in the right place. And you have to establish yourself to a degree of, of showing reliability, showing that you have a brain, showing that you can keep pace to get that, you know, that call up, so to speak. Yeah, and I think it translates with any industry. I was always taught way before I was bartending, they would just be the first one in the building, the last one to leave. I mean, they sound like cliches, but it shows commitment to any employer. It shows that you do want this. 
And that's what I always did. And especially in the bar world, um, I would show up really early because in still speaking about bar backing for people who don't know you, the ice that goes into your drinks that they, that you bartenders use to shake and stir your cocktails. I mean, I don't even know the weight. I mean, I do it by measurements of buckets, you yeah. know, those big five gallon buckets. So yeah, each ice well is about 20 gallons of ice yeah. and those things are heavy. Um, one of my first bar backing jobs was the, it was a nightclub and they had 16 wells. Wow. And I would spend, yeah. And just getting the ice alone, it would take like a couple hours and, <laughs> There's nothing I won't do now as a bartender. I love having my bar back and experience. It, it keeps you humble and it, it makes you a better mentor for when you have bar backs and apprentices. You know what to ask for and how to ask for it because you've been in their shoes. Um, and there's nothing I won't ask a bar back to do that I wouldn't do myself with the exception of getting ice. I, I am so traumatized <laughs> from carrying that many buckets of ice for 16 wells in a giant nightclub. There's a thing with, uh, with work. I'm scarred. (laughs) There's a thing with work ethic too. If you show the, the willingness to, yeah, your job might be your job description on paper might be a, B and C, but the willingness to jump in and do D through M without hesitation, without rolling the eyes or anything like that, that kind of really elevates you above the rest of the people you're working with. Absolutely. So, to kind of transition, it's an absolutely normal transition, is I, what we failed to talk about in part one, because I was gabbing about myself, and I apologize, but hopefully you all get to know me a little bit better. But professionally, about bartending mixology, I recently attended a, a class, and it was to help some friends that they had put together a bartending school, but not a traditional bartending school. It was four days, I believe it was an hour or two each day, and the first three, really, before they touched bottles, was about theory, and and not so much philosophy, but theory, skills, technique, what it takes to be, what is this new world of craft cocktail, these mixologist bartenders, is there's reasons behind everything you do, and it was a beautifully taught class, and I went in on the last day and got to see these young bartenders in training actually pick up bottles and, and put what they learned to use and make us drinks and engage with us at the bar. And we got to give some feedback. And I remember it was all industry veterans there. Our friends had called in other bar managers, bartenders, liquor reps, um, just everyone in the industry, everyone that knew how daunting this is like your first time really pouring for people so we'd all be a little nicer and very supportive and more than anything we're all talking amongst each other and say where was this class when we first started out because the traditional route is bar backing um, or just get a shift at a dive bar there's a vodka soda gin and tonic whiskey coke and then you work your way up in complexity of drinks throughout your career or you do the bar back and just wait for someone to to fall off and and you get your shot but the actual the theory the skills and technique it's i love that people are addressing this now um and that this is a thing so i had a reason for transitioning (laughs) what were we talking about oh we're talking about paying your dues yeah right And, and we're talking about that's that was the normal way to do it but i think 
is the work ethic and everything you go behind. I think one of the things that was missing that you can't really replicate in the class, but I always encourage people who want to start bartending is, is one, get your foot in the door wherever. Uh, the tough thing about any bartending school is it's, there's no practical hands-on application. But the other part is it's just repetition. You, you really do need back to kind of like the, what, the analogy that I was talking about with barbers. And you can be a barber's apprentice and thank, thanklessly sweep up the floor. What I really admire about barbers is I think they have to do something like a thousand hours in barber college. And it's just, it's hours behind the chair. And in my world, it's hours behind the bar. So even as a barback, you're watching. And I always tell barbacks or bartenders or anyone that I'm teaching when I'm doing my online classes, if, if it's not just a casual how to make a cocktails class, if it actually is a bartending class, I always tell people, watch much like how, and I don't know if I touched on this in the first one, so please forgive me if I repeat myself, but much like how kids will watch Steph Curry or LeBron do something on the court and then they get to go out to the park and try that themselves. I go out drinking a lot. My fiance and I, we, we, we like the nightlife here in San Francisco and it's a great scene and we go out a lot. And not just the people that I work with or in my career that I've worked under, uh, when I go out, the way that I see people doing bartending is more than knowing the recipes. And that's what I really like this class was teaching. But it's, it's really, it's service, it's hospitality, it's how to engage with people. And you can watch good bartenders when you go out. What do they do? Something as simple, how do they greet you? Michael, good to see you again. You know, you're here with your brother Rob. It's, you know, it's been a minute. How are things, how was that trip to Mexico? I don't know, whatever you were talking about. <laughs> Um, to how they laid down a napkin, how they served a drink, how they even closed out your tab and wished you a good night. Um, there's so many little things that it's it's really more emotional IQ. Yeah. Um, as a bartender, we talked about this. You know, you're a philosopher, you're a therapist, you're <laughs> you're the feel good guy. You know, you're the party starter. You you have to be all these things, but you have to know what to be for different people, all while making you know, a technically sound drink. But uh, given that repetition, you get those hours down, that becomes second nature. Speaking of, of technically sound drinks, there's, I've noticed recently, and, and by recently I mean over the last maybe five to seven years, unless my brain is fried and it's been longer, but there's been a movement of, of craft cocktails um, making more of a show, you know, uh, smoking the drinks, um, yeah. different flavors, different things, the, the whole thing. And then there's a little bit of like a, a throwback with some of the outfits that the bartenders are wearing. They're wearing like the old school, you know, button up shirts with the, the band on the arm, the sleeves ready to go. Yeah. What's, what is, um, what I guess moved towards that? What brought, brought some of that back? I, I mean, there, there's a full history lesson. There's a guy named Dale DeGroff who's kind of like the godfather of modern, mixology and i couldn't do justice into uh his history and how he brought it back but anyone who knows cocktails or if you want to learn more just research dale DeGroff. um and it was just about revisiting the classic kind of like prohibition era cocktails but updating them and bringing them into the modern world and and with fresh ingredients a lot of those recipes the traditional or the definition of a cocktail is uh alcohol sugar and bitters and 
um, my theory, and I'm sure I read this somewhere, or maybe I just made it up because it makes sense, is you know alcohol back then it wasn't the best. It was it wasn't the the craft liquors that we have now, where people spend four years distilling um, this this whiskey or this gin, this tequila. You know they they spend time trying to get the flavors just right and how they age it. Um, for how long and what temperature and what part of the warehouse. Like, it is a science now, yes. Michael. Yes. Back then, we're, we're talking about moonshine, <laughs> liquor, bathtub gin. Um, really, like, a lot of harsh, harsh, like, ethanol-poured alcohols. <laughs> so you put sugar and bitters there to soften and kind of, like, hide the flavor of these alcohols. Um, now, with, as I said, these distilleries putting out some amazing liquors rather than than hide or mask the alcohol we want to complement and accentuate so it 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 really did take a turn it started with dale degroff um and i think that was kind of like i might be getting my timings wrong so please no one flame me or just message me on instagram and kindly educate me if i if i'm wrong um (laughs) But I definitely do know, like, cocktails, as we know, as they came to the States, um, is, mind you, just quick side note, I, cocktails, it's been written, are America's one culinary gift to the world. Um, you know, we steal everyone else's food, but cocktails <laughs> were created in America, and it's, it's our gift to the world as far as that. But, um, yeah, as they came through, we all know, like, the 50s, you know, what was it, like, the, the two, three martini lunch, and then into the 60s. And once we get into, like, the 70s, into the disco era, the cocktails really became sugar bombs. You know, it's like everything was overly sweet. Um, and then after that, like, people kind of stopped getting the taste for cocktails because it was just overly done. And, you know, you have these big, garish, tiki cocktails with a whole bouquet of flowers coming out of the top and everything. And so this modern mixology really came back to less re- address the classics but with better ingredients and actually apply some technique and skill to this it's one for example i never knew that there was like a certain amount of times you should stir a manhattan or a martini it was just in the recipe book it would say for a manhattan two ounce of rye one ounce sweet vermouth stir and then strain and you're like okay well what does stir mean but in today's world it's evolved now to Precision. I mean, depend. Yeah, precision. How much ice, um, and to stir it forty times, forty exact times. Revolution, um, and that will give you the optimal dilution. When we stir a shake a drink, um, we're not just looking for temperature, but it's dilution. On average, uh, most cocktails are about twenty percent water. It's what makes a difference between, like, obviously a gin martini. I'm going to put dry vermouth in there, but if someone wants to, like a gin up. Uh, is basically like chill gin, no vermouth. So what makes that different from gin that I just stick in the freezer and just pour that into a martini glass is there's 20% water. And we're not trying to cheat you. People think, oh, well, you know, like you're getting less alcohol. No, it's dilution. Water is part of every recipe. Right. And without that, that's that water is to soften it. It lengthens out the cocktail, makes it a bigger drink, but it's to to soften it is to thin it out, uh, thin out the alcohol. So it's just more palatable. It's more drinkable. Um, but you're asking about like this modern mixology thing. 
Um, it's funny. It has been like maybe a little longer than five years, but it varies by regions okay. in the country. New York is kind of always like the first to kind of push the envelope. Uh, just the bar scene out there is fantastic. Um, Have you San been Francisco out here for and bartended anywhere in New York? No, I'm scared to. <laughs> um, short answer: I live this life. I yeah. love. It's a paid nightlife for me, and I love being in the bar. Uh, what I described in our last talk uh, as uh, as the crack of a bar, the energy. Um, having grown up in London, Manhattan is like the one city that really matches the energy and electricity of London. I, I, I love New York, and I've yet to explore other boroughs, so don't jump on me if I'm if you just <laughs> gonna get on top of me for calling out Manhattan I'd love to explore them all hit me up send me recommendations and next time I get out there I will absolutely I love New York um but um San Francisco is not far behind when you think of like the top like food destinations in the states like this New York and San Francisco is right behind and with food comes drink right um and I'm not ignoring Los Angeles, Chicago, Miami, like they're the big ones. And then you have like Denver and Austin, like Portland, Seattle, like they're doing all doing amazing things. But you talk about like the big scenes. And um, so you kind of see like after New York tries something, San Francisco will do something like L.A. is right there with us, like right. doing stuff. Um, maybe I kind of see it that way because I am here on the West Coast. But definitely as I've traveled around the country, um, and I won't name any cities because I don't want to upset any people. Like everyone's doing amazing stuff. Don't get me wrong. But I'll see some cities like they're just now doing stuff that, oh, we did that a year ago. You know, and it's just as trends go, as people migrate, they bring those things with them. And right. as bartenders, especially during the pandemic, a lot of San Francisco bartenders, a lot of great bar managers have like left San Francisco. There was no work here. Um, and rent prices are ridiculous. So they, they've moved on. Um, and they're bringing those skills and talents to other cities and, and they're going to grow the drinking scene out there. They're going to teach the next one just as we were taught. So yes, there's a lot of trends going on. I think it's been going on for over here, like six, seven, eight, ten 10 years. Um, but I will tell you this, one thing that I've seen because I dove into craft cocktails and for anyone listening, craft cocktails just means fresh, fresh ingredients. So you, you can't use sweet and sour out of a bottle. You know, that neon green shit that you find <laughs> in the grocery store. That's like margarita yellow. mix. Yeah. Yeah. It, don't. It, don't do that and say, I make great margaritas. Like, <laughs> fresh lime juice. Just that's craft. It's fresh ingredients. Um, and then it's the technique and skill behind measuring and knowing how to prepare and, and make these drinks. But in San Francisco, I'll speak for my city, is – if you think about a pendulum where you have like fun nightclub party drinks, you know, like your Long Islands and Tokyo teas and sex on the beach is like, that's kind of looked down upon as bartending, which I've already defended in, <laughs> in our earlier chat is that was valuable for teaching speed and all that. But every bar has its time and place. But then if you swing the pendulum to the other end of like bartending, what we call mixology, is you know that that care, that precision, that that everything having a purpose in a cocktail. The the reason why you spend eighteen dollars for a bloody drink at a restaurant or at, at these bars is it kind of the pendulum here in San Francisco swung a little too far. Where I myself, 
I was in cocktail competitions and I loved seeing what my peers were doing. It inspired me to do new and crazier shit. And then I wanted to outdo them like in a very friendly competitive way. We all pushed the boundaries together until we started to get into molecular mixology. And yeah, so we've heard about molecular gastronomy where you can make a foam, you know, that has the essence of like a duck's feather in flight, you know, whatever the (laughs) fuck that means. You know, I, the only way I can explain it is like when you take a culinary method and, and these are used at very high end places and we started to adapt them for the bar. Um, I was making like cocktail spheres where you can suspend a cocktail like in a, in, in a sphere, like, um, and then when you pop it, like it'll, it'll pop in your mouth. I forget the exact term. And, um, what is that called? Like, have you ever had, like, a salad where they have, like, balsamic spheres in there? Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's it's a similar process. Um, anyone listening, shout it out. Super fancy stuff. <laughs> it, it, it is. So my point with – and then so I was, like, talking to another guy, another example that I can't explain. I almost bought a centrifuge. You know, like a science experiment centrifuge? But what you can do with a centrifuge – they cost like two grand and somehow me as an individual, not as a business, I was trying to convince myself that I could buy a used one for $1,200. And if you put, um, like let's say corn into these centrifuges and then you turn this thing on, it'll separate solid from, from liquid. Right. And what you're left with is like corn water and like all the mass and like all this, the solid of the corn whips to the end of these test tubes. And then you have like clear corn water and it's, it's fantastic. It tastes, I had it at a, at this one cocktail bar here in San Francisco and I was like, I need to do that. And, but <laughs> what am I doing spending $1,200 to make one cocktail? Right. I think my point is, is as the pendulum swung from like fun, easy party cocktails to like these really highly complex molecular mixology kind of cocktails is what I felt as I was out there competing won a couple, you know, like, and I, I'm so proud of that. Like, it's just so much research of the stuff and you're going against so many other bartenders. Uh, I was just better on that day or that drink just impressed them more. Like I don't, none of this means you're a better bartender. It just means you make a good drink. Like any, pat on the back. Any competitions about who's the best on that given day. Yeah. Uh, and that's what it comes no, down for to. Sure. What kind of, and, what kind of things are, are, did you win with? Like what kind of drinks did you win these competitions with? Like, what are I'll the judges you, testing for? The point that I was going to make was you can make these crazy drinks, but what I found out when I went down this rabbit hole of wanting to be this, you know, I, I thought being the best bartender was doing these crazy drinks. What I missed out on was the relationship with the customer. Is when you work in these kind of bars, there's less banter. There's definitely less crack, that energy that I always talk about, that loving bars. Right. You kind of miss that. And if all the focus is on the drink, then you forget about the customer. And those don't necessarily go hand in hand, but I did feel not so much a disconnect, but I felt a loss of the relationship with the customer, which always meant more to me. Right. And I remember a bar manager in London telling me, the person in front of you is just as important. Oh no, that's. <laughs> you, have you ever like taken something, a quote, and like mis misquoted it? All the time. <laughs> yeah, I, I give this guy way too much credit, but he, he told me a few things. My quote 
You want to know how I know it's my quote? Because I quote it myself on my <laughs> website just because I think it's hilarious. Trust me, I'm not that pretentious. But it's the lesson I learned from him and developed was the person in front of you is just as important as what's in the class. Right. And and in the quote, it just says me. Um, <laughs> and it's the relationship. If somebody just wants a vodka cranberry, I'm going to make the best vodka cranberry. Why? Because I actually know your name. I want you to feel special. I want to make a night. I want you to not feel looked down upon because you didn't get a six or seven layered cocktail, you know, that's smoking and have, have chinar julep spheres floating in the bottom and there's no gold leaf on my garnish. Like <laughs> at the end of the day, Michael, it's just booze. Right. And there's different styles of booze and there's different vehicles for the booze. And I celebrate them all. But what I was most comfortable with was doing really good cocktails and to answer your question, what did I win with? But having them approachable. I think sometimes if you over-intellectualize anything um, in the drink world or, you know, in the culinary world, it's like, oh, I did this one thing, you know. And then someone tries it. They're like, yeah, that's good. And you're like, did you not notice, you know, X, Y, Z, what I did? They're like, no, it, it was just good. And you're like, so what's the point? You know, like really we all want delicious food and drink. Uh, when I make drinks, I, I want to make it what we call playful. Like it hits a bunch of taste buds and it just tastes good right. and it finishes smooth. And you don't think, Oh, you know what? Like that is, that is the best scotch cocktail I've had since 2017, since that one time in Nashville. Like this it's it's a drink. You just want to enjoy it. It's a facilitator of good times. I don't think it should be, over dissected so the drinks that i won with were what i call session cocktails and they're not so much session in in the terms of like a session beer where it's low abv i think a session cocktails which the new term for it is crushable and i don't really like that because there's the whole connotation of like binge drinking but it's just it means you can have a session with it like you could drink a margarita as a session drink okay i could drink four, five, six, seven, eight margaritas and not think about it. You know it's tasty and you know you want another sip. And then when you're done, you know you want another one. That's a great drink for me. And so the competitions that I won, they weren't overly complicated drinks. They were just the kind of drinks that if I put that on my menu, it would be my top seller tomorrow. Got it. And sometimes some of those drinks that like are so overly done while – mind-blowing and amazing and just some of the things that people do michael like you wouldn't believe there's like four hours of prep behind <laughs> and it's fantastic i am not talking down on any of these it's good for but, competition but not for it's not practical for a bar yeah yeah and and honestly you just start to think who are you doing this for um i i was taught one thing um by dave napo he's his nickname is mr mojito here in San Francisco. And uh, he made his career that he embraced the cocktail that most bartenders hate, his mojitos. He has his own line of muddling gear. It's fantastic. Really? Uh, I love mojitos. It's just, for many reasons, bartenders hate making them. Um, and the short answer, because people always ask, why do, why do you hate making mojitos? It's not a hard drink to make. I can make a mojito almost as fast as I make a daiquiri. It's, it's a really fast drink. The problem why bartenders hate it is, one, they're delicious, <laughs> but, but two, it's because they're delicious and the smell with it and it's just the visual presentation. They look light and fresh and on a hot day, 
As soon as one goes out, everyone's ordering a bloody mojito. So that in itself shouldn't be a problem, right? If I'm just making the same drink all day, who cares? The problem with mojitos is the exact same problem as egg white cocktails is after I shake that drink and I pour that drink and I serve it up rather than just rinsing my tin for like one or two seconds on those little bar rinses you see, or even under a tap and just building my next drink, anything with muddled mint, muddled anything or egg whites, you have to clean that for anywhere from 10 to 20 seconds is I have to get those pieces of mint out of the strainer. Because if I make the next drink, I don't want any mint to impart itself on, on the next drink. Right. The next drink's not supposed to taste like mint. With egg whites, I have to even go a step further and put that tin in the dishwasher and sanitize it. You have to take proper um, proper precautions because you you got raw uh, right. raw eggs in there and salmonella. So it just takes me longer to clean my tools before I can make the next one. Right. So mojito itself isn't a tough drink. It's just as soon as you see one mojito being ordered, you know there's going to be a run on all of them, and it just puts on a giant halt to everything that you're making. Right. So anyway, that was a sidebar. Dave Nepove, Mr. Mojito, he embraced the mojito. and But what he taught me that applies to what kind of drinks do you want to make? And this uh, this lesson applies – I've taught this lesson to, to cooks, to chefs, like when I'm the GM of a restaurant and – they're asking me, should I try this dish or the next one? And and this is the lesson quite clear is when you're trying something, out of 10, where does it rank, right? Okay. In my dealings with Dave, it, I gave him a drink and he loved it. He said it was a 9 out of 10. I look up to this guy. I'm already, I'm already just dancing. I'm like, I crushed it. I made an amazing drink. I impressed Dave. And he asked me what went into it. I told him there was a syrup that took me like two hours to make. God's honest truth. And he was like, well, try it with this liqueur. Liqueur is already like basically a boozy syrup, for lack of a better explanation. But it had some of the same profiles. And I was like, what? I could see how you want to put that in there. I was like, but it's not going to be the same. He goes, just indulge me. And so I make the same drink, but with a pre-made, you know, liqueur. And he tried that and he goes that's a fucking good drink too. And I tried it and I didn't disagree. And what he said, he goes, the drink with your syrup is a nine out of 10. He goes, the one without is like an 8.9, 8.8. And here is the lesson. If it only, this is what he told me. If it only feathers the meter, you're only indulging yourself. Cause he said, yes, I know the difference. My peers, you know, who are doing these crazy cocktail competitions would know the difference. He goes, the customer bloody wouldn't. And he goes, at the, t- right. at the expense of time and cost to you as a business, he says, you, you, and are you the only one who can make this serve? I'm like, yeah, I don't trust it with anyone else. He goes, so you, whatever, if you calculated your hourly rate, he goes, how much is that syrup worth to you? He goes, just use the <laughs> liqueur. And I've told chefs this. We're like, oh, no, I have to, I have, to have this ingredient. And you're like, the point is, if you add something, whatever you're doing, if you add something or take something out, if it goes from an eight to a nine, or if it goes from a nine to an eight or even an eight to a seven, if there's like a clear one point difference, it's, it's very apparent right. that something better or worse, having done this or not done this, just be honest with yourself when you're doing the, the metric. If it's a one point jump, you do it or you don't do it, right. whatever you're measuring. If it only feathers the needle, 
and it takes it from a 9 to a 9.2, and you're like, oh, it's marginally better. You're only indulging yourself. And I've carried that lesson. That was six years ago. It's a good lesson. And uh, it, it, it just it, it teaches you, you know, to kind of scale things back and, and to not overdo things and to not just indulge yourself. I think we can all be perfectionists in, in a lot of what we do, whatever craft you take on or uh, whatever your work you're doing. You, you want to do everything perfectly. And I think sometimes we do a lot of things to excess where other people generally don't notice. And there's a lot of frustration that people don't. And you're like, so why are you doing it in the first place? Pride. <laughs> Pride, yeah. <laughs> personal pride, I think, is a, is pride, a big factor. Ego. I mean, you know, you like want to be fun things that yeah. validate ourselves. Oh, I, mean, I love that. They're chefs, friends of mine, but. <laughs> chefs, and, and bartenders, you know, high high profile bartenders like yourself, they do take a lot of pride in, in the product they're putting out, and they think that anything they do that's going to slightly diminish that is going to be a bad, re- a super bad reflection on themselves. And I, I've seen uh, that in other aspects. I, I agree, I, Michael. I'll, I'll tell you this: it's if you look on my website. Quick plug, go to bootsybrogan.com. I've just, <laughs> I spent like an entire night redesigning my website <laughs> for no reason, just because I got in one of those creative kicks. And uh, I might have been overindulging myself there, but indulge me and visit the website and see what I'm talking about. Definitely. And uh, that's Bootsy Brogan, B O O T S Y, kind of like Bootsy Collins. <laughs> uh, we discussed where I got that nickname from, but, uh, and Brogan, B R O G A N. What I wanted to point out, and my point is, yeah, pride and ego. Like, I mean, it's those things drove me to compete in cocktail competitions. Those things drove me to apply to competitions to be a judge. Is my ego was saying, oh, I don't need to compete anymore. I want to be a judge. And definitely, my my pitch and my question to the to the people who run these competitions was not in that tone and definitely not in that vein. But it was something that I thought it'd be cool if I got to be a judge. I wanted to see. I didn't want the stress of having to compete. There's a lot of anxiety with what you're going to do, how you're going to pull it off, and then what your peers are going to do. Because yeah. you know they're going to bring the fire. Yeah. They're, so on Chop Challenge, you just see the people opening the basket. They're sweating. Guess who's not sweating, Michael? The, the bloody judge. <laughs> yeah. So that's really what drove me. I was like, no, I love these. I love the scene. I love seeing the creativity. I, I get inspired by what other people do. I just don't want the stress. Hold on. Can I judge? And they let me judge. Um, it's fantastic. So obviously ego and, um, pride drove me to those things where you can do a lot of things. But if you look on my website, my point being, I have like an honors and awards section. And that's just like when people are looking, why should I take this guy's classes? Who is he? Has he done anything of importance or is he just a guy with a cool Squarespace website? And, um, Another nice the answer is both. Yeah. The answer is both. <laughs> but one thing that I'm very proud of is not just like a cocktail that's been published or uh, an award that I won um, or like a video production that I took part of is I have a testimonial section. And I honestly, God's honest truth, I used to put testimonials from customers of mine, bar regulars that I've accumulated over the years that have sat at different bars of mine. And almost like a book has a blurb section on the back from peers Whenever I applied for a new bar job, I always thought the resume of where I worked, what style of bar, whether dive bar, restaurant bar, cocktail bar, I didn't think that told enough of the story of who I was as a bartender. What does it mean? How am I as a bartender? What does it mean to sit at my bar? 
So I kindly asked a number of who started as bar patrons, who became bar regulars and became personal friends, that they would come in to visit me. And it was, it was a relationship. And it was more than you ask for drink, I make drink, you pay for drink. Because that's just purely transactional. I think going back to what I was saying is you have to remember the customer. These are real people. Yeah. And it's the beauty and the magic of a bar is you build this environment, this home away from home where people feel comfortable and safe from the shit day they've had, yeah. you know? Um, and, and the bar has always been and, and should be a sanctuary. And so I have these people that outside of the bar, I have this relationship. I was like, I would love to hang out with you outside of the bar. Now I hate to break it to anyone listening when you bartender's like, yeah, let totally let's grab a drink sometime. If they haven't called you and you haven't gotten a drink together, it's just, <laughs> sorry, I, I don't want to pull the curtain too far back, but I mean, we're just trying to be friendly and polite and right. not, you know, put you down. But, um, there's a handful of people that I have reached out to that I know personally, um, that I've gone out, you know, I know their children. Um, I've been to their birthday parties is, the beauty of bartending, you get to meet cool people from all walks of life. Absolutely. And and you get to take that beyond the bar and ex- extend your network and, and your community to people that you would have never rubbed shoulders with before. Right. Um, so these people, I asked them, I said, could you write me a blurb? Just like, you know, authors write about fellow authors with their books. And I have some of the best reviews. It's kind of like a personal Yelp review. But, you know, fuck Yelp. So th- <laughs> these are from people that I asked and I told them, if you don't want to, that's fine. And I didn't steer them to say one thing or another. I just, I think the prompt was, what does it mean to feel, or what does it mean to sit at my bar? What does it feel like? Yeah. And, the, you know, and I got some really nice responses. And I put those on my website just as I did when I put them on my resumes because I wanted people to know what kind of person I was without me telling them. It's, I, I forget what, how the saying goes, but it's like, if you need to tell people, you know, who you are, how you are, like, let others speak for you. Right. Reputation. And Sorry, go ahead. Reputation is, it kind of precedes itself sometimes and it, it can do volumes in both good and bad. Um, yeah, absolutely. You have a reputation of being a, a good bartender, somebody that's easy to talk to, somebody that makes other people feel welcome, give them that, that cheers vibe. Um, it's it's gonna go a long way and i think yeah I, I think that's part of my metric is i'm just definitely when i think about good bartenders i know some amazing bartenders that no one will, will have heard of because they're like the neighborhood bartender i was like but it doesn't make the one guy who can work a centrifuge and make <laughs> a, you know a foam that smells like an elephant's fart in the sahara you know just on an autumn day like I, I, i'm kind of poking fun at like how people describe some flavors and essences that, that they're going for. That stuff is truly fantastic. But the bartenders that I respect, and I think, like, let's just go back to how bars started. It's just you wanted to go get a drink and take the weight of the day off of you. Right. And so there were people who would facilitate that, and they would give you a glass of something to encourage you to kind of, like, unwind or let go a little easier. Yeah. That that's what we're doing, and it's it's taken on a life of its own, and I think it's fantastic. But let's not forget the customer, and um, 
some of the best bartenders I know, they just, they teach master classes in human relationship and human interaction. And I, I look up to them Are those just the, as much the as kind of I things do. that you, you show or teach on your website and the classes that you'd have there? It, it's tough to, I think, And obviously, I'm not the only guy. There's so many, and there's people who do both. Right. Kevin Dietrich here in San Francisco, he's uh, he won Tales of the Cocktail American Bartender of the Year, and but he's not stuffy. He's not pretentious. Uh, he doesn't ignore his guests. Sometimes these bartenders they get so focused on the drink, it's, there's no person that they're serving. They're just right. making this this drink. Um, his hospitality is superb. Um, go all the way out to Paris, uh, Rory Gallagher. Uh, he runs Little Red Door. It used to be run by a man named Remy Savage. The two of them together, Remy, I believe, is out in London now. Top 50 cocktail bar bar managers in the world. They're fantastic. And yet when you go, you would feel like you were walking into the neighborhood pub. Nice. Um, true story. I, it had been a year since I was in Paris, and I had gone in with my fiance and didn't, call ahead, didn't write Rory ahead of time. And I just walk in and he's busy. He's on the floor. He's helping some people. He goes, is that booze? And I, it, like, it, it made me so happy. I look up to Rory. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was like, yeah, man, good to see you. He's like, oh, shit, I haven't seen you in a while. And he, he didn't stop what he was doing, but he was coming behind the bar anyway. But he kindly asked some people to move down and kind of shuffle along the bar. And before... My fiance and I had taken our seat. We had two shots of mezcal waiting for us. Didn't even ask for it. And we, <laughs> we talked to that's that's the bartender's love language. It's just to say, hey, I love you. I missed you. Here you go. There's a little cheeky shot on me. Um, you don't get that at a lot of high end cocktail bars. You know, that's it's kind of a little unprofessional. And why would a bartender take a shot with you? So, the, no, he was right there taking a shot of mezcal with us. It was a welcoming that he knew I would appreciate. Right. And, and mind you, I don't think he does that with everyone, but there, there's a certain way. It's it's being a people person. It's building a community that's – we all gather around this this thing called booze, you know, whether you like it in a glass of wine or a shot glass or in a fancy cocktail or in a bottle of beer. I don't care. Like we all gather around one common appreciation. But then what do you do with that gathering? It's, it's a community, yeah. and, and it's the bartenders who build that. I agree. I'll go – as you said before, you use the word facilitator. I think bartenders, if done the right way, bartending if done the right way, can do a lot of therapy for some people. Um, when I was bartending, it there was every Tuesday night I knew there was the two guys who would come in after their work. Every Friday night I knew the group would come in after their softball game or whatever. It's like you, you knew what was going on. You could almost have things ready for them. You, you knew what to expect. And the joy of just interacting with people is what I loved about being behind the bar. And, and on the flip side, I'm sure you've been on the other side of the bar. Have you ever gone to a bar where, you know, the bartender, you know, it's a great bar. You've always had a, you know, a number of good times there and you're on your way to that bar on a Thursday night, you know, Rob's always working. Let's just say, and then you go and Rob's not working. You look through the window. You're like, Oh shit, it's not Rob tonight. Now, you might do, like, the honorable thing. You go in and have an obligatory drink because you're already standing at the doorway and you don't want to offend not Rob behind the bar. 
you know, it's, it's, it's a very painful thing to happen. I, I've been that guy. You're working a, a shift that's not yours, or maybe you're new to the bar. You're standing there, people walk in and they see you and they walk right out. It's, it's, Had that happen a few times <laughs> when I started. Yeah. It is, the, it is the biggest silent slap in the face. Yeah. <laughs> but I understand where they're coming from. We've gone to that bar and you don't see the person that you know. Mind you, same bar, same drinks, same beer, same liquor selection, probably same music going on, same ambiance, same everything. But if it's a different bartender, it's a different experience. Right. And what some of these top 50 cocktail bars, and actually, let's take that out, what some of the better bars do, and it could be the neighborhood bars, is they teach the culture that no matter who is behind the bar, they all facilitate that same feeling. Right. And, and hopefully we can create that same relationship with the other bartender. And I think that's one thing that I appreciate about some of the better bar programs. I'll shout out Little Red Door again in Paris. It's one of the most impressive bar teams that I've ever seen. Um, this is not a sponsored ad for Little Red Door in Paris, <laughs> but it's my best, it's my favorite bar in the world for so many reasons. But I think the simplest one that I can wrap up uh, is there are no servers. All the bartenders are servers. Okay. And you figure in a cocktail bar, who better to explain it than a bartender? But it is so seamless how they interchange roles. Like I just said, when the last time I went, back to Little Red Door, Rory, the bar manager, was on the floor as a server. He was bussing glasses while asking people if they needed another refill. And as soon as I came in, um, he slid behind the bar, started making drinks for me and my lady. And then without word, there wasn't even a nonverbal communication. It's not like he raised his hand or like patted someone on the back. Once he started making drinks for us sitting at the bar, someone who was at the bar slid out onto the floor and took his position. It was just the best teamwork. There was the nonverbal communication, one that I couldn't see. But they all picked up for each other, and they all made sure that every guest was attended to. And if there was a personal friend of any of the other staff, then they would come behind the bar, and then someone would always fill the hole. And it was just it was service, hospitality, attentiveness, um, and it was just caring for all the customers at all times. Um, and it was just a level... If I go back and I have gone back and Rory's not there, I know I'm going to have a great experience as they all. And, but that's, that's like, as with any company, you have to teach a culture, you have to teach an ethos right? and, and everyone buys into it. So if you're not there, then, then the same services, products, goods or whatever the hell you're selling, they're all delivered in the same way. And that's a very tough thing to do. So to jump real quick, give your, uh, give yourself a little, little more, uh, room to expand where can people find you and what can they find when they look for you on the interwebs? That's a good question. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Chance to promote yourself. (laughs) Yeah. Don't look for me on TikTok. I've got one TikTok video. I love it, but it's just, it's too, yeah, it's, it's not for me. Uh, For people looking for me, Instagram is the easiest way. Um, I'm on my Instagram all the time. And the Instagram direct messages is probably how I started communicating with people. And it's just, it's so easy now. Um, and my Instagram is at Bootsy Brogan. Same as my website. That's Bootsy, B-O-O-T-S-Y, Brogan, B-R-O-G-A-N. Um, that's at Bootsy Brogan. And that's, yeah, add me. I'll add you back. I, you know, I'm not one of those people who cares about their follower account. Like, I, it's a relationship. And it's... Yeah. 
it's weird facilitating a digital relationship, but it can be done. It's how we met. Yeah. Uh, and if you message me, I promise you I'll message you back. And I always like to open up, especially through Instagram. You know, you don't have to write fan mail or like, please don't. Um, I'm just a bartender. <laughs> uh, um, I'm a guy who pours drinks into glasses. It's But what I love about the Instagram is, and what I always offer up after I teach classes is, Buying alcohol, I'm not even going to talk about getting to how to make a cocktail. How do you know what to or how to make a Manhattan if you don't know the difference between bourbon and rye? Yeah. And that's no fault of the person's. That's, I kind of put that on, on me, on the bartender. We haven't taught you. We're the experts, so let me teach you. And let me teach you in a non-pretentious way that doesn't make you intimidated to do it. Right. I think I started doing online cocktail classes and now a YouTube channel to answer all the questions that people ask me or ask the questions that people are too afraid to ask because I've been in their shoes. I've asked those questions and I've had, I think I mentioned this before, I've had the pretentious mixologist roll their eyes mm -hmm. that you didn't know about some esoteric abstract ingredient right. made only in South Antarctica <laughs> that grows every blue moon on an even year. Like, whatever that is, you know, great, happy you sourced it, but no, why would I know about that? Or the flip side of that, the kind of, like, indifferent asshole dive bar bartender, where if you ask for, you know, anything nicer than, like, what you see on the middle shelf, they're like, ooh, fancy pants. You know, like, the kind of bar, if you're like, oh, I'd like a Manhattan, they're like, get out of here. You're like, whiskey. What? Yeah, no, exactly, right, and it's just... It can be intimidating at the bar, but I hate the elitism and I hate the attitude that some bartenders bring, and they definitely are the minority. Um, but if we're the experts, we should be happy to take questions. The problem is we don't always have the time. So right. I open up my Instagram. I open up the digital relationship and obviously the in-person relationship if you're ever in San Francisco. Message me. See what bar I'm working at. We're guns for hire at the moment. We're still crawling out of this pandemic. Um, I'm currently at Macandre. It's on Polk Street. It's an amazing cocktail bar. It's kind of a, a callback to the old fern bars in San Francisco. It's plants out the ass. And thankfully, someone else besides me is tending to them. Otherwise, they'd all be dead. <laughs> but yeah, you come to my bar and then we can meet in person. But digitally, if you want to add me, questions that you have on making cocktails are even more applicable to a lot of people. These are the most messages I get is, hey, it's my dad's birthday. What kind of tequila should I buy? Yeah, I think I'm, I think I mentioned this earlier, right? And yeah, it's like, oh, what kind of whiskey to buy? It's when you go to Bevmo or Safeway or Total Wine or whatever's in your local area, you're standing on those shelves. That's intimidating. Yeah, and you know, you, forty bucks is a lot of money, even for me. And I don't want to spend forty bucks on on bad liquor, and nor should you. Shoot me a message. Don't do it like while you're in the store because I don't know. I'll, I might be working. I won't be able to get right back to you. But yeah, tell me what you're looking for. Tell me your budget and I'll hit you right back. And then if you have questions on how to make the cocktails, absolutely. You know, I've even like taken many videos of myself making it just so people can see it and I'll just send it to them through Instagram. Um, it's a really cool, quick way to like communicate with people. Um, Instagram's number one. I'm building up my YouTube videos are going to come out at a more regular pace. Um, those things are tough. Um, and, uh, my YouTube is the Bootsy guide 
uh, again, Bootsy, B-O-O-T-S-Y, The Bootsy Guide. And um, that's an educational thing. That's where I take questions that people ask me at the bar. And I answer them because there's safety in YouTube. No one's going to judge you. And I'm not going to call out your name and be like, hey, Michael from New Jersey asked me this question. He's an idiot, but we'll answer it for you. <laughs> you know, like that's... You know me so well never... already. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is our second go at this part too. So, I mean, it's... It's um, a joke. It's that's the beauty of YouTube, and I love doing that. And if you have any questions, or if you want to see a video on a specific topic, I've done guides on rum, gin. I'm tackling tequila. Then I'll move on to mezcal. Scotch is kind of like the big daddy, where I'll do like I just want to do like a quick five minute guide where you watch a video and you know a little bit more about that category. Yeah. So people don't just say, "Oh, I hate gin." It's like, "No, you hate London Dry Gin," you know. You don't hate all gin. Yeah. Uh, I have discussed this before. You know, like I, I don't hate, but I don't like Chardonnay. Does it mean I don't like wine? No, just right. don't serve me Chardonnay. Uh, and I definitely don't like double IPAs, but I love other beers. So, when people are curious about liquor and they're looking for a friendly person to talk to who will give them no attitude and celebrate, I think message me. It's, I want to be accessible and I love that about social media is when you sit at my bar, I can talk to two, four, six of you, but really I've got, got to make drinks for other people. And that's as far as your reach or your influence. And there's more than six people a night, you know, that, that have questions about liquor. So if you hop on the social media and you're not afraid of it, people can reach out to you. And you can answer more questions. It's, it's fun. We can learn together. Because anything I don't know, I promise you this, I don't bullshit. I have so many peers and so many people I look up to. I will ask them. Right. It was I will never blag anything. I'll never bullshit or just make it up to sound smart. It's I love this industry. I love it's, uh, Sorry. Uh, I, I no, think one of the one of the phrases or, or words of wisdom that I got that was great is if you're in a position of authority where somebody is asking you questions, one of the best things you can do if you don't know the answer is say, I don't know that. Let me go research and I'll get back to you. Something to that effect. And that's kind of what you're doing here for people is you're giving them an outlet to, to get yeah, that information. I, I am an authority, if you will, but not the authority. There is no the authority. There is no one person. Right. Even Kevin Dietrich, who I mentioned, he'll, he'll tell you, I'm not the guy to talk to. And he won bartender of the year in the United States. I don't want to put off who won bartender of the year in Europe. Um, but he's not the authority. There are many authorities and they're specialized. Right. And it's okay to celebrate that. It's especially the bar world is such a community. And I ask others for help all the time. Um, I celebrate that. I, I love learning. And, um, so I like to teach others as much as I learn, let me teach you. And if I don't know, then I'll ask someone else for you. And I always give them credit. You know, there's so many people smarter than me. <laughs> and, um, but I do that. So definitely what do we have? We have our Instagram, my YouTube. If you go to my website, it's kind of like the third way to reach me and, and kind of start this relationship, you know, and build these. If you want to learn how to make cocktails. I do private cocktail classes. I do corporate cocktail classes. If you're locally in the Bay Area, we can do it in person. If I've done classes, if you're in London or Sydney, and the time change for me sucks teaching a class <laughs> at like seven in the morning. 
But guess what? I'm committed to this and I'll be drinking a margarita with you at seven in the morning if I'm teaching you how to make one. Um, but I love that. I started teaching cocktail classes throughout the pandemic and I honestly was hesitant to do it because I thought it's not the same doing this through uh, a video screen. And I found out the reach was even greater than just doing in-person cocktail classes was now I could do a cocktail class for 50 people. Right. Uh, try, trying to keep their attention all at the same time is a little tougher. I have to kind of be a little snappier <laughs> and a little, not shorter with people, but you are kind of corralling sheep at that point. Welcome to education. Uh, <laughs> God, hats off to teachers, man. Uh, honestly, when you're dealing with drunk people, it's like corralling children. It's the, the similarities <laughs> are too similar. And um, But when I teach cocktail classes, like it's all – on a sliding scale, my prices, I believe, are on there. But I will teach classes based on what you need to know. Um, I think everyone deserves a good drink. And there's too many things at our disposal now that I know people where they're like, oh, I just drink whiskey at home. and they're like, But whenever I go out, you know, I like a good old-fashioned. Yeah. Oh, that's the easiest drink in the world. And you could follow, and I don't blame the people again. I blame us. You could follow the recipe in a book to a T, but it doesn't tell you how long to stir. It doesn't tell you that the size of the ice actually matters. And in the classes, I teach you theory and practice, but we make drinks together. But I will teach you the foundation of why you're doing it. So any drink you make from there on out, you know how long, how to stir, how to shake, and how long. And then you know how to strain it, And but you know that there's a reason. A simple point that I'll explain to you that if I'm making a drink that gets served up in a martini glass, there's, there's no ice in it, I will stir it twice as long as I would as if I was stirring a drink that was going over ice. Why? Because we discussed most drinks are about 20% water. So if it's going to go over ice, it will further dilute. Right. So I teach people, it just says stir and then pour over ice. And then the next recipe says stir, pour in a martini glass, no ice. It doesn't tell you to stir them differently. And even if it did, you're like, well, why is that? So I, in my classes, I teach you. And then as soon as you tell someone, you're like, well, it's going to go over ice. It'll dilute more. So do it for half the time. Like, oh, that makes sense. And yeah. you'll never forget that. Yeah. You're like, okay, on ice, half as long. Over ice or not on ice, do it for longer. And, and I teach people how long. Um, but I like to teach them a foundation. I don't like to teach people how to cook a recipe. I want to teach them how to cook. You know, if you will, yeah. like I'm talking about like the knife skills and like the, the how to make, you know, like the basics, the foundation. Because once you do the foundation with bartending, one of my classes is how to make two, two dozen drinks with one recipe. And it's not one recipe. It's kind of that's just marketing. It sounds better than two dozen drinks with one ratio. Like <laughs> that, that's not catchy. But it really is once you teach people one ratio for how to make drinks, you can make two, three dozen drinks. They're just variations of the same, but you teach them not just the recipe, but you teach them the why, the what's and the why's and the how's. And then from there, like, you can not just make those recipes, you can start making your own. My dad is, you know, an older Englishman, he only drinks beer, and he's making technically sound craft cocktails, <laughs> like world-famous cocktails. And if he can, then I can teach anyone. Got it. Well, I will be sure to uh, put the proper links to everything that you just mentioned so people can go and find you and engage and interact and learn from you. So 
Oh, hit me, hit me with another three questions. Give me another three. I'd like the three questions. Let's see. Let's see what I can find. I always feel like on the spot, like I have to be factually correct with questions that are about my profession and my expertise. These are questions that have no pressure. <laughs> These, there, there's no uh, wrong with it. Back in high school, what was the strangest thing someone could find in your locker? Oh, I mean, you'd be lucky if you found anything. I used to keep my textbooks in my locker, and I never <laughs> took them home. Um, I was one of those annoying students that, like, I could test well. So, like, off of my notes in class and then just studying before the test. So I never took my textbook. I never used my locker. Neither Honestly, did I. Like, my, I, here's a funny thing. When I moved here from England... I, my idea of high school was built off of Wonder Years and Saved by the Bell, right? <laughs> and and what's, what happens in both of these? Everyone congregates outside of the lockers. Yeah. I thought that was the thing. Like, hey, we'll all meet up. Like, you got to choose your locker in a good spot. I, my high school, Tam High, um, up in Marin County, two famous people came from Tam High, Tupac and me. <laughs> and I don't, I don't even think Tam High, I don't think they even claim me. But I'm putting myself there, not on his category, but like notable Tam graduates. <laughs> uh, and but Tam High is like it looks like a mini college campus. It's a beautiful setting in Mill Valley, and it's up on this hill. And there's a math building, an English building, a science building. But they're all spread out, and each building has its own lockers. So really, there is no central congregation area. So it's just it's just a stuff to a place to store your books. I never use my locker, and. Yeah, not really a good answer, but definitely you can laugh at my my naive idea that like all American high schools should be like saved by the bell. Uh, it, mine wasn't, disappointingly so. <laughs> I, was, I was the same way. I mean, I was in a high school where, you know, the walls and halls were literally lined with lockers that were maybe 8 to 10 inches wide, and they expect you to cram all the stuff that you need in there and in the winter jackets and all that. Kids would put their skateboards and stuff in, but I never really used my locker either. So I, have, well, I I think those those big high schools with like those hallways of lockers that's like more so in the colder states. Am I right? You know where like the high school is one big ass building, yeah. whereas in California, hey, you know it's still sunny out right now and it's <laughs> mid October, and like we can have these big open campuses. Let's see. Next question: What's the creepiest thing you could say while passing a stranger in the street? Um, this is taken from my friend, Jake Corn Rosenbush, if he's listening. He used to always do this to me while I was bartending, because he'd whisper in my ear, he goes, you smell different when you're awake. And I was, <laughs> <laughs> Jake is the guy who gave me the nickname Boots. I've known him for, what's that, over two decades. And he said that to me so many times, and it still creeps me out. <laughs> like, it shivers. I'm like, why? No, dude, that's not, it's not inappropriate. It's just really creepy. And he would do like a big sniff up your ear too, Mike. He's like, mm, you smell different when you're awake. And you're like, no, I don't like that. Stop. Yeah, so that's, that's, yeah, so it's nothing. That, that's, that's creepy. Definitely creepy. I'm I, I think because I, I think because I'm a city kid, you know, like growing up in London and then San Francisco and just, you don't say creepy shit to weird people. You don't know who they are. And, you know, you could incite violence. That's just one of the rules about being a city kid is just, like, stick to yourself. No one fucks with you. You don't fuck with other people. Right. So I don't dream of whispering creepy things. But my friend Jake, you know, growing up in the suburbs, he thought it was hilarious as hell. 
just going to sniff up my ear and then say something creepy repeatedly throughout the years. And it's, it's never lost its, its creepiness. So, I mean, I guess hats off to him. Uh, the third question. Have you ever had anything waxed? If so, what? God. <laughs> oh, I thought these were easy questions. Yes, I have. This is embarrassing. Um, but as with everything, as you come to know, I'm not just going to give you an answer and just leave it at that. Short answer, I got my back waxed. All right. Um, I'm really embarrassed that I had to wax my back, but I also am okay enough and secure enough. I'd rather wax my back than go out to the beach just rocking like a full winter pelt. <laughs> you know, like, yeah, I look like one of the Starks. You know, I, I, maybe not that bad, but like, I think nature's cruel joke on me is I'm half English and half Filipino, or English, Irish, and, and Filipino. And my Irish grandfather had this beautiful head of hair, like silver fox, you know, with a quiff. And I just remember, like, when he had that, I was like, oh, I'm going to have that. I'm just going to have this great, like, platinum white hair. And then Filipino is like, no body hair, right? <laughs> yeah, Filipinos, they can't grow a beard. Like, there's just no body hair. You, like, get some on top and that's it. Nature's cruel joke on me, Michael, is that I got the Filipino hairline. So, like, my grandpa's like comb over, like my, my hair just started to run a little too far yeah, to my yeah. liking. So I, I just buzzed it off. Yeah. I used to rock like a high fade in high school. So I know like I have a decent shaped head. So, I mean, just this past year, it's just like, nope, we're shaving it, be gone with it. And I got like the, the English Irish, like the body hair, I get back hair. I don't need that shit. I live in California, but like, you know, genetics is my family grew up in a cold ass climate. Why couldn't I get the full head of hair on top and, like, the no-body hair? No, nah, the genes got flipped, but at least I've got a beard, you know? Like, my Filipino cousins, they can't grow a beard as glorious as this. So, like, you got I'll, one up on me I'll in there. I, I, I can't for the life of me really grow my facial hair. It grows to stubble, and, and it just looks bad, and I shave it. And I haven't had a – I've had a receding hairline since high school, so. Oh, no. It was not, not horrible, not – wasn't too bad in high school, but it, it my forehead yeah, sorry, was a little. I didn't mean that. Like I wasn't trying to make fun. Like I was, I was empathizing, thinking about the shit that you did get. My forehead wasn't as big as it might sound, but um, once I went to a police academy, having to shave it every day, it just became a thing. Yeah, I just. Oh, it's I've, so much easier. I've been bicking for the last like twenty years now, so. Um, I'll, I'll tell you the other thing about waxing, and and shout out to everyone who waxes. Um, because I, I have a full back tattoo. Like I've got a, a sleeve, I've tattooed my chest, and but like my full back is done. And that shit hurt. That was 55 hours. It was 11 months uh, of getting tattooed and went back every two weeks. This isn't a tattoo podcast. I just want to kind of like really get into people like this was painful. After six months, I was over the tattoo. Like your body's under attack every yeah. two weeks. It's up. I would rather get another tattoo than wax my than wax my body. I I, I sympathize with that. I that pain chair like constant and just that dread that you're going to be in a chair for five hours getting tattooed because the waxing I think with a tattoo it's constant so you know it's there and it just sucks and that but with the waxing is that it's kind of like anticipation. Yeah, exactly. It's anticipation. You're like and they're like whether they count down or they don't it doesn't matter because you're anticipating that pain and when they when they pull, I'm a bigger guy. It's snagging something, 
right? And it's just snagging that loose flesh where like it catches. Watch forty year old virgin when he gets waxed because that's a live take. Oh yeah, that's oh yeah, that's not fake. You can tell from the lady's expression; she's laughing her ass off. She, she, <laughs> I'm not laughing she, at, at your pain. I'm laughing because I've been there myself. Because I had my back wax. My kind of did it as a joke. My my cousin is was a cosmetologist. So she waxed people on a regular basis. And she thought it would be hilarious to wax my back. And like you said, the anticipation, once you feel that hot wax go on, and then they put the paper on and, and they really rub it in to make sure they get nice and nice adhesive and good a good batch. And then you can start to feel that she'd pull up the, the side and then she'd wait. And she's like, all right, I'm going to go on three. And it was like See, one I'm drip. And I'm like, oh, my See? God. I was already wincing because I didn't even think she was going to say the one. Oh, yeah. You're like, no, this person is enjoying this. Oh, uh, she fucked I with know. me all the time. It was. It, I, I I mean, I think in part that's probably why I got a full back tattoo. So you can't really see if there's hair back there. Right. <laughs> and it's just I'm going to have to look, you know, like a full chieftain and just get everything like or like a Yakuza and just get like a full body tat. Um, it, because, as I said, I'd rather take that pain over the waxing. Like I. I hate that you asked, asked that question, but I had to give you the most honest answer because, hey, I'm not too big yet. Go and get my back wax. Because there's <laughs> nothing cute about, like, rocking back hair when you're out at the beach. Yeah. Like, c- come on, man. Like, we, we can all, like, as much maintenance as, as the women in our lives do or the men, um, just a little self-care. Yeah. You know, and if you want to rock it, all the best to you. But, like, not so much as self-conscious. It's just I don't like the way that, like, if you, if there's a breeze, you can feel that shit on your back. Here. That's not cute to me. Like, I want, nope, wax it, get it taken care of. But I will do it as uh, as infrequently as possible because that shit hurts. <laughs> well, I thank you very much for your time, the uh, the oh, conversation, you, and educational and definitely enlightening and and and, and a blast. I don't so. know how educational it was. I hope people learn something from this. Is it's just you know what I like about your podcast is it's it's us hanging out. Um. If, if there was a drink between us, then it actually feels the same as if you were just hanging out in my bar and it was just the two of us. And it was like a slow Wednesday night and nobody wanted to come out, but neither of us would care because we're just chopping it up and there's probably a game on in the background. Is, um, don't worry, I'm not going to get into podcasting. Man. <laughs> <There's> <laughs> you should. So about no, you just, it was just a really nice conversation. I appreciate you taking the time and, and us and allowing us to do a part two because I had so much fun on the first one and talked more than I should have. But I think we should end it before we even flirt with part three. Yeah. <laughs> definitely. Uh, might have to do part three in the future, but definitely you up know, for that. I, part three is I have a trip to New York coming up soon. I think part three should be on my end. We'll do a YouTube video and we'll sit at someone's bar and, and we'll do another in person, but we'll get some video so people can see and, and compare our bald heads. heads yeah. I'm game for that. <laughs> and then, yeah, we can have the same conversation, but in person over a glass of, uh, of, of something at the bar. Maybe one of those black Manhattans you were, you talked about. Oh my God. I'm glad you remember if <laughs> people get anything from this podcast, try a black Manhattan. Yeah. It's the best thing on that note. We're ending it. <laughs> oh, cheers. Thank you so much. Awesome. I, again, thank you very much. Thanks for listening to another episode of Adding Context. You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or visit us at addingcontext.com. You can also support our show via Patreon. Send us feedback and show ideas to podcast at addingcontext.com.